Your World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to look at a subject that has become very popular over the past, oh, at least a decade, and uh, people can hear people discussing coaching from any number of different points of view and any number of different contexts, from relationship coaching to money coaching, financial coaching, to executive coaching. And these are just a few of the many applications of this idea. And before that, there's been a sort of a backdrop of psychology and counseling and psychotherapy. And this is a a relatively speaking emergent idea that has become very, very popular and widespread. And Today, we are really very, uh, very lucky to have with us Dan White, who is an executive coach and author on the subject of leadership, specifically a book called Coaching Leaders, Guiding People Who Guide Others. And Dan has been involved in coaching for many years, many years. He's a facilitator and organizational development consultant who specializes in helping leaders, teams, and whole organizations reach their full potential. Prior to his role as a coach and organization development consultant, Dan served as director of organization and executive development at Citibank. There he implemented original approaches to leadership training and organization effectiveness and championed two major culture change efforts that enabled rapid business growth. He teaches the leadership coaching course at City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, Dan is also involved in the Pachamama Alliance, a very robust nonprofit organization that specializes in the education around the environment as well as the cultivation of social meaning and spiritual awareness regarding largely issues surrounding the environment, uh, climate change, and ecological slash environmental matters across the world. We both work in that space together. So, Dan, it's a pleasure to have you on and to help educate our audience about this thing called coaching, which we've all heard of, as I was saying, and yet know so little about formally. So it's really a pleasure to have you uh, joining me today to to discuss this. It's a pleasure to be here, Mitch, and to be with all the listeners and viewers. And hopefully we can enhance everyone's knowledge and understanding in our time together. Yes, that sounds great, Dan. Well, why don't we just start at the beginning, and let me just ask you, point blank, what is coaching, if you would define it, and then go into the uh, description of what executive coaching is, which I know is your specialty. Yeah, coaching is a profession that's focused, especially executive leadership coaching, is focused on helping leaders become the best that they can be. That leadership is a complex and challenging role. Very few people are born knowing how to do it. Everyone who who masters it goes through some sort of learning process, and the role of a coach is to accelerate the learning process 
of leaders, of new, you know, um, mid-tenure and and experienced leaders, because mm-hmm. there's there's always challenges in leading an organization. Indeed. So, how would uh, separate from leadership, which, as you say very well, is just chock full with its own variables, many of which are subjective. Uh, how would you define, Dan, just coaching in general? Because it happens, as I was saying before, within a context, I think it's it's reasonable to say, of people's understanding of psychology and out of which comes the field of counseling and out of that also and connected to that is psychotherapy. So there is some liaison, there's some relationship between these fields, yet they are also distinct. So how would you guide us in understanding these distinctions? Yeah, well, actually, you know, psychotherapy and counseling are, in a sense, preceding or parent professions for coaching. That, you know, our, you know the role of coaches is to enhance the growth and development of another human being. And I and most coaches draw a lot of our skills from, um, you know, from the disciplines of counseling, from the disciplines of psychotherapy, as well as from the discipline of leadership and organizational management itself. So coaching being the newest of all those professions pulls from many others and is sort of an amalgam of all those professions. But that said, I think that maybe the best way to define coaching is to define the various roles a coach plays. Uh, And so let me run through maybe half a dozen different hats a coach wears when they're working with a client. And first is an observer in a mirror that to to work with a client and help them optimize themselves, we need to get to know them very well, very quickly. Uh, Sometimes I'll refer to what I train coaches is, is to perform an MRI on our client to get to know their inner workings mm-hmm. because we're not going to impose a one-size-fits-all leadership model on them. You know, that's more what a training program would do. Coaching is very highly customized to an individual, to their skills, their personality, their values, and the the setting that they find themselves in. So observer and then mirror is we sh- you know, because we're sort of expert at at observing behavior, observing other people's thoughts and feelings, then reflecting back what we see. Because one of the critical uh, skills in self-development is awareness of yourself. So what a coach does is help a client become more aware of themselves in the six to 12 months that we work together. Another role is as a creative guide that once we determine what path, what learning and development path the client's going to follow, excuse me, I'm talking in New York City and there's, there's sirens. Yeah, um, they're trying to get in on the act. Right, right. Steal our thunder. That, you know, like a, a wilderness guide, you know, that we're we're taking the client someplace they've never been before. So we need to, one, have been... You know, on similar trips with with similar clients, and to guide them, but without knowing all the answers. You know, the, the coaching relationship is a collaborative relationship. So, using input and ideas from the client and input ideas from the from the coach, that they sort of row this canoe together up mm-hmm. upstream. 
Mm-hmm. Another role is that of a, of a teacher. That um, coaching, as you know, as opposed to some other professions, is is time is very time limited. I said, you know, usually six to twelve months, and the expectation by the organization that hires the coach is that the client will change some behavior, where they learn some some new leadership behavior, or abandon an old one for something that's or one that's more productive. So. Um, one of our roles, and not our only role, is 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 to teach a new skill. Uh, another pair of roles is a thought partner, which in generating ideas for you know what new behaviors and what new mindsets can I develop that that are going to lead me to this promised land of of more successful leadership. And also a practice partner, like a personal trainer or a you know a tennis coach. We you know once we identify the new behavior, we'll hit balls and, until they and you know, repeatedly try the new skill over and over and over again until they mm-hmm. they become um, they master it and become more confident at it. Mm-hmm. And a a last and not often talked about role is a political consultant or a relationship consultant. Not too different from you know, the kind of consultants that that politicians have, or that that you know, members of, of marriage relationships have. You know that, that leadership is a is a relationship sport. That you know, some, mm-hmm. I think somebody at Harvard did did a study and found that over ninety percent of a of a leader's day is spent in conversations and meetings. So. Mm-hmm. It involves other human beings to a very, very great degree. It's highly social. Highly social, uh, and with different, uh, you know, different players. Uh, I mean, with player with people who are more junior to you, with people who are peers to you, and with people who are more senior to you, and with people who are in different disciplines. So, and. Every organization, starting with a, a sandbox and a playground, has political dynamics. You know, who, who owns the toys? Who has who has power over what? Who's allied with whom? So, as a political consultant, help them help the client figure out which relationships and you know are going to help them develop and help them succeed, and what sort of levers to pull and ways to in, engage in each of these relationships. So this, these are like seven of the of the roles that a coach plays, and that should give people an idea of what a coach does. A last, yeah, yes. a, a last concept is, is coaching, like psychotherapy, is is a lot about talking. You know, Freud called his profession the talking cure, the, mm-hmm. and that contrary to you know to some people's opinions, talking does sort of clear the path to behavior change. You know, if, if I'm a leader and I, you know, I don't delegate enough, I, I, I sort of do too much myself and I tend to micromanage my people, that even before I begin to try out delegating and managing with, at, a, at a greater arm's length, I, I, can, I can talk with my coach about it and sort of try out what it might be like to do that and and voice my resistance and voice the you know the the fear that I would feel and letting go of some control and that talking actually builds some new brain patterns and weakens some old ones so 
talking is a very important part of the coaching process. And I'll, I'll sort of leave it there and, and sort of let us move on to your next question, Mitch. Okay. Uh, that's very, very informative and really nicely laid out, Dan. Uh, I very much appreciate it. I'm listening uh, both, of course, as an interviewer host here, but also I have tried to remove my my psychotherapy hat, and it doesn't come off my head. So I don't know mm-hmm. if it's permanently affixed or what. But, of course, uh, that's my background, so I uh, can't, in a sense, help but listen from that place. Um, and interestingly, all those hats, all those roles that you just articulated are those that uh, I find that I play as a psychotherapist. And I call myself a holistic psychotherapist as a way of conveying that in one type of relationship, we can cover and relate to all those different, seemingly different domains of a person's life that are completely inter commingled, if you will, uh, interactive and connected. You know, we we think that we're perhaps not being a spouse when we're engaged in a business conversation with an associate, but there's a part of us that part of that nature is coming to the to the foreground, or uh, a friend even in many cases in business where we see friendship and business relationships overlapping tremendously because at the end of the day, we are who we are. And while, of course, that's mutable to some extent, and that's the domain of our next question, uh, there's a tremendous amount of consistency in who we are and how we show up. Could you uh, comment on that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the sort of... uh, contradiction or, or dialectic of, of personal change that yeah. there are there are consistencies in us that there are some you know, some things some aspects of ourselves that are pretty constant and are pretty set in stone and there's other aspects of us that can change and as a matter of fact uh, the more we learn about the brain and the more we and the more Coaching and psychotherapy and, and these sort of other other change professions evolve. The more methodologies we have to help people change, and the yeah. more the more we know. I mean, that there's a a concept in in neuroscience called neuroplasticity, which essentially means that that the brain can change. Yes. That the that most of what drives our behavior and even with most of what underlies our emotions and our thoughts are connections of neurons in our brains and in our bodies yeah. and uh even if you know if we have a this there's, there's therapists and, and coaches that work on 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 even changing strong emotions there's you know there's yeah. a movement in therapy now that's that's, that's helping people who've experienced trauma change their trauma response Mm-hmm. And through various techniques, they can actually help the, the client's brain develop new connections that are less fearful and more appropriate 
to a situation. Yeah. You know, once once they're out of yeah. once they're out. Of, so the more we know, the more we realize that, that that human beings are more flexible than anyone ever realized. Yes. Um, a That's caveat to that is is that change takes a good deal of effort and a good deal of concentration. I've already mentioned, you know, the importance of awareness uh, and a good deal of discipline. And there's there's been a bunch of work on on self-discipline lately, and they're finding that self-discipline is a is a quanta, meaning we have a we have a certain amount of it, and we can use it up. That they've done experiments with um, people learning new new words or new languages, and when people are asked to learn words in Spanish, uh, while they're being asked to resist eating chocolate chip cookies, they learn Spanish slower because there's two different <laughs> types there's two different types of self control that are operating at the same time, and it's uh-huh. like a you know a, a bridge in New Jersey that it just doesn't have the capacity. You know, it has an eight-ton capacity, and if you exceed it, that it can't do either of them well. Yeah. So, one of the, one of the things to remember is to is to um, limit the number of behaviors that you're trying to change at any one time. At one, one time, time. I'll, I'll, I'll say yeah. a year, because it it does take discipline, it does take focus, and if yes. you spread it too thin, um, it it loses its energy. And you lose yeah. your effectiveness. Well, it's the it's the dissipation that occurs through multitasking, and the brain, of course, and the nervous system are formidable uh, powerhouses of energy, of electricity, of chemistry. Um, at the same time, uh, there's a certain delicacy too, as you're describing, and only a certain number of things that can happen consciously in the domain of learning. Uh, and we have to respect that. I, I personally, while that experiment is certainly interesting, and we should probably all reduce the number of chocolate chip cookies we're eating anyway and increase <laughs> the number of Spanish words, um, we know uh, at the same time, uh, based on my understanding of I've been studying neuroscience for some time, and neuroplasticity is one of the, the favorite words on a better world here at Better World Radio is, uh, and I so appreciate it, uh, there is a mutability that I think goes beyond a lot of even our ability to test. And that's a whole other interesting thing. How do we even test for things that are in the domain of what might be the infinite? So, you know, when you start dealing with trillions of neurons, you're in a world where we're, uh, pardon the expression, we're in over our head. Can I say that? Right. (laughs) It's all very interesting. But this begs the question here, Dan, of what is change and how do you as a coach understand it happening? What is change from the point of view of a coach? Uh, And how do you bring your clients to that threshold and past it. Great question, Mitch. So let's let's start with with even <clears throat> a historical perspective. That a lot of people, both historians and psychologists and sociologists, are, are saying that there's more requirement and need for change now than at most other times in human history. Mm-hmm. That the 
the the speed of, of economic and economic and workplace transition, the speed of social and cultural transition, yeah. and the speed of, of of international relations and economics is it's, it's increase. I mean, you you hear it all the time. So, yeah, there's more I of a need for this very, than, very than, than ever. Right. Yeah. So then, peeling back the next layer, that in the end, you know, both as a as a coach or, or any kind of leader, we're looking for behavior change. We're looking for someone to, you know, stop doing something one way and start doing something another way. Mm-hmm. Um, and but humans and um, human behavior is is sort of driven or caused by a few different other forces. One is the, is the, the habit of the behavior itself. Uh, another is the mindset, or what some psychologists call their mental model, which is how they are, you know, their thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if I see you as an enemy, I'm going to, you know, if I think that you're an enemy, I'm going to treat you a certain way. If I think that you're a friend, I'm going to treat you a different way. So yes. under, underlying behavior is, is thoughts and, and mindsets. You know, I Another must layer. Uh, interject that, yeah. you know, there's the famous line then of uh, Albert Einstein's, which says that perhaps the central question we can ask ourselves in our lifetime is, is the universe friendly? Huh. Uh-huh. And, and of course, and you know, what's what interesting is, it. yeah, how we define, how we answer that is saying so much about us. It's it's sort of a Rorschach question, if you will, you know. And you see certain national leaders who see the world as unfriendly. That's correct. Uh, I won't get too political, but someone like like no, it's okay. uh, like Mr. Putin, who who grew up in the KGB. Um, sees other nations as competitors and maybe even enemies and reacts a certain way. Uh, mm-hmm. There's other leaders, other human beings who see the world as basically friendly and they, you know, that might be the same other person or other group and they will treat it in a friendlier way because they believe, you know, their thoughts are yeah. telling them that it's friendly. Look at this whole thing with Iran right now and this this agreement that was forged over the last year or two or so. And I keep saying to people, it entirely pivots on one word, and that's trust. Actually, it's not even friendliness. It's trust. Mm -hmm. I think everybody became very friendly, by the way. Uh, But it really pivots on trust. And because we have trouble trusting, and they have trouble trusting because of the history of of mistrust and distrust uh, for many good reasons on each side, by the way. Oh, there needs to be independent verifiers of whether each side is doing, well, really, one side is doing what they say they're going to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I just wanted to bring that to bear in, in what, you're, what you're sharing with us. Yeah, yeah. And, and very, very similar and related to, to thoughts are emotions. Yeah. That, and then even even using this you know this concept of, of friend or enemy that when we believe we're in the presence of a friend we have certain emotions um, yeah we have you know uh, 
and, and there's even different neurochemicals. And when we mm-hmm. believe we're in the presence of an enemy, we have different emotions and different neurochemicals. So different when we're talking about change, well. right, yeah. right. When we're talking about change, that the most permanent and, and really um, long-lasting changes come from um, facilitating change in all of these human arenas, in behavior, which is sort of the end product, in thought, emotion, and even and perception, which is somewhere in there um, as well. Yes. Yes. Exactly. That's a, in a sense, that's at the base of it all, because if one is perceiving friendliness or perceiving that they can trust, they will, as you're saying, behave a certain way, and there's a, an entire biochemical, bioelectrical, and biohormonal profile for each feeling and for actually every thought. So right. we march down right. that path. Yeah. Right. So, so what we do in, in, in a coaching process is first start with the, with the old pattern, and the old pattern is what we what we're deciding to change. Yes. Uh, and but before we before we dismiss it or, or or try to leap from it too quickly, get to understand it. And this is where awareness comes in. Excellent. Being aware I'm of so the glad old you behavior. That up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Being aware of the old behavior pattern, being aware mm-hmm. of the thoughts and emotions and perceptions that precede the behavior, and just. You know, like the Buddhists say, start where you are. Start by accepting this is my yeah. current pattern. Yeah. Then there's another another really important uh, concept in change, which is motivation. Uh, that because this is going to take some effort, I need some motivation to engage in it. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes the motivation can be, you know, getting promoted in my job. Sometimes the motivation can be keeping my job. Sometimes the motivation can be being more liked and enjoying work better. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. Um, One of the techniques we use to to build motivation in leadership coaching is what we call gathering 360-degree feedback, in which Mm -hmm. we interview, usually, you know, know, with in confidential interview, you know, six to ten of the of the people that the client works with, and ask them about their behavior patterns, and ask them, you know, both what they do that's really strong and good, and what they would everybody would benefit if they changed, and then write this up into a report and and share it with the client, and often that can be very eye opening and and therefore motivating. Mm-hmm. The client can can read it and say, oh, I didn't know people saw me that way. That's not how I want to be seen. I want to be seen like this. So the I want to be seen like this, really, it's, it's almost naming a new behavior. So if we have one equation, you know, one line of the equation being old emotion, old thought, old behavior, and then I develop this motivation that says, oh, I want a new behavior. I want to, you know... I want to listen more, or I want to delegate more, or I want to um, talk more succinctly. Then, so, so that becomes the new goal, and we contract around that. But then we can work backwards. Say, you know, like with friend or enemy, what emotions and what thoughts might I need to drive this new behavior? 
and then that becomes the, the agenda for the the bulk of the coaching process. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering. You know, it's a funny thing. If I, if let's say I say I want to delegate more, mm-hmm. and look at it as a cognitive decision and a behavior change, would you go? Then there's the whole psychodynamic, psychoanalytic dimension of behavior and attitude mm-hmm. and emotions which has to do with, in this case, let's say that my interest in not delegating as much as I think I should or the 360 feedback that I'm receiving suggesting that I should is related to my lack of trust that other people will do the job well the way I want to So you could say on some hand I have an issue around control. And I'm, you see, and why would I have an issue around control? Well, it happens that when I was emerging from the womb, the doctor was really very swift in yanking me out, and I didn't feel quite ready. Thank you very much. You know, I'm being funny here, but uh, nonetheless, there are the intra-utero and the outer-utero experiences, peri and prenatal uh, reasons that we may think the way we do, that we feel the way we do, or early childhood, first five, six years, that could have formed uh, a belief system through a perception that we really need to manage things ourselves. Otherwise, we might not get fed. We may not get the nipple. We may not be hugged, dot, dot, dot. So where does that deeper layer of uh, inquiry fit into the coaching model, including in a corporate you know, business context? Yeah. One of the differences between coaching and, and therapy is – um, unless it's really top of consciousness for the client, we usually don't dig too far back into the for, into the formative years, into childhood. Um, mm-hmm. We try to focus more on on the future. But as you said, sometimes the you know the learned behaviors and learned emotions and and learned patterns so start very down. early and and become very strong habits. So what I try to do is merely to increase the awareness that this is, you know, like I said with, you know, with, with Buddhist thinking, this is where I am, that I, yes. and, and um, you know, an inability or, or a, you know, a lack of delegation could come from a, a desire for control because when other mm-hmm. people had control, they messed up my life. Um, one, one client I'm working with right now, with right now uh, recognized that Perfectionism was one of her patterns, mm-hmm. and recognizing and you know that in organizational life, not everything needs to be perfect. Yeah. Uh, and so, once she recognized that she tended toward perfectionism, and that not everything needed to be perfect, then she can and she knows it's sort of like um, you're driving a car, an old car that pulls to the left. So when you're on the highway, you'll 
pull it a little bit to the right so you can stay in the middle of the road or you can mm-hmm. stay in your lane. So mm-hmm. um, rather than going all the way back to childhood, you know, and you know, and sometimes you know, I'll recommend clients you know engage in psychotherapy because there's something you know there's some big you know um, reason that we can't quite get to, but mostly I try to use awareness and yes. then use Pleasant that awareness use that awareness to and that's where yeah. the discipline comes in to um resist the pull to steer to the left or to resist the pull for perfectionism uh, you know the, the pull is always going to be there uh, that, that's the other thing about behavior change the old patterns never disappear but what our goal is is to build enough strength in the new neural pathway, enough habit, enough comfort, enough competence that the new pathway supersedes, you know, the the new highway becomes wider and better paved than the old one, so it's easier to drive down. Yes. You are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. periodically throughout the week. Uh, you can receive our free newsletter by going to our website, www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, and learn who will be our guests on the given shows every week. We're on television in Manhattan, community cable television, at 7 o'clock every Monday evening. And that can also be seen from our website if you're outside of Manhattan. And we're on radio right here at 6 p.m., and I love when you join us. Today we are speaking with Dan White, who is an executive coach around leadership and is the author of the book, Coaching Leaders, Guiding People Who Guide Others. Dan, it's really a pleasure to have you on and to be talking about this. It's uh, so much in my wheelhouse. that It's just mm-hmm. really a pleasure to, to yes. be going through all of this. You're asking very sophisticated questions, so this is it's fun for me. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Oh, here's a question. I don't know if it's sophisticated or what, because change is something that we're all staring at all the time, whether it has to do with our uh, mental habits, emotional habits, reactivity, um, physical choices. Am I going to eat that chocolate chip cookie? Am I not? Am I going to exercise for another half an hour today, am I not, you know, what What am I facing, how am I managing my time, how am I managing my money, you know, all of these, uh, my, my resources, you could say in general. What do you do to help people get over, let's say, that hump of the habit, uh, and I know you answered already by saying we help people build motivation for understanding, you could say, the carrot, the new carrot, whether that's a promotion or keeping their job you mentioned or uh, maybe, you know, winning the girl, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be, whatever the carrot may be. You know, what if even looking at that, uh, there is a hesitation or reluctance or a fear that shows up or just an issue with actually crossing that threshold? Yeah, well, motivation is important. You're not going to go anywhere or make any change without motivation. So one of the things we do is, is once they've identified what their motivator is, to remind them of it from time to time. That 
you're doing this you're doing this hard work and you're struggling and you're in a meeting and you're and um I'm working with a client now who's who's trying to manage their emotions and manage their their frustration when people ask questions they think are underinformed that yes. you know and that's and that's their habit what's their motive what's the motivation to get them to go against their natural tendency so motivation is very important another very very important part of the coaching process is practice that you know um with this client we practiced responding with a question rather than a a put down and and what she what she realizes is no three practices wasn't enough i need 10 or 15 or 20 mm-hmm. as a matter of fact malcolm gladwell says at least 21 repetitions to you know to burn new neural pathways yes. so we you, we often don't have time for 21 in a coaching session but um, I'll try to do you know five or eight in a coaching session, and, and you know, sure. in training we call these role plays. But I'll, I'll actually you know ask a stupid question and and train, give the client an opportunity to try the new behavior, try it again. So I mean, and knowing that we're trying to to sort of garden neuroplasticity, you know, we're yeah. trying to plant seeds and water the seeds and keep the weeds out. So these new neurons are going to connect. So next time she's not going to get angry or say that's a stupid comment. She's going to ask a question. Oh, tell me, tell me how you know where you had that idea. Tell me where that came from. So something more, <clears throat> something friendlier and something more leader-like, something more respectful. But repetition as as it, it's not the the highest level of coaching skill. It's not complex. Yeah. You know, it's yes. just doing push-ups, mostly around, around leadership <laughs> right. skills. Uh, right. But that's really, really important. Um, and the, the, last, the last is, is um, a relationship, um, making sure that the client isn't alone in doing this. Because when you're alone in doing something, um, it often, you often stop. Yes. That's why, you know, in, in camp we had a buddy system when we were in learning how to swim, <laughs> uh, that, you know, the, the coach can be a, a partner. But I also, you know, ask my clients to find another partner or two who they can, you know, ask to help them, someone who's, sure. who's there in their environment day to day because I only show up every week or two. Yeah. Um, exactly. So relationship and, uh, and relationship, not just some, not just someone who's going to unilaterally accept you, but like with a coach, someone who'll have a nice balance between support and challenge. It was, yes. You know, pat you on the back when you did it well, and let you know and say, "Oh shucks," when you missed. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. But, and but basically, I, like I mean, when I was when I was in Boy Scouts, I wasn't. I wasn't terribly motivated, and I was sort of sort of bumping along. And then my neighbor and I decided, okay, we're, we're bored one summer. Let's earn some merit badges. And then over the next two summers, because we were in this partnership, uh, we kept yeah. on earning merit, merit badges. And within three years, I became an Eagle Scout. I never would have done that wow. without a partner. Yeah, that exactly. it, it was Very all because, because because Bobby was there. Yeah, yep, that's very powerful. Uh, in fact, that really kind of leads into the next question that I have. I'd like to, I'd like to get some examples of your coaching in the domain of uh, leadership and in the 
in the corporate domains in which you've worked. But first, I'd like, if you would, Dan, this is really hard, but I think valuable for people to think about. What, in your years of working with people in coaching leaders, how do you define leadership? What should we be thinking about relative to the notion of leadership? That's a great question, Mitch. And fortunately, there's been lots and lots written about leadership. College professors, you know, like to write about it, uh, partly because there's 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 money in it uh, that leaders leaders pay money to learn about it. And it goes by the way. I'm going to say I'm going to give a historical footnote to say that leadership uh, in my worldview goes back very much to Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. And that book is often considered to be a lot about leadership, but mm-hmm. in a way that we might not think about leadership today. And then there's Sun Tzu, of course, too, but, you know, I just wanted yeah. to throw that in. Yeah. And, in. and we have some in Western society, too, that Moses yeah. and Jesus and Julius Caesar and Charlemagne yes. and you know, there, there's been you know and in modern history you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King and in the environmental exactly. movement Al Gore Mandela. there's been people who who you know who what Nelson Mandela yeah there's been people who who so what are some of the things that leaders do and there, there's there's books my my book goes through a, a, a quick summary of what we call leadership competencies but mm-hmm. some of the the more glaring ones are first framing a mission and a vision and a strategy that you know letting the letting the letting their people know where they you know where I the leader thinks we ought to go you know and Moses did that and Jesus did that mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King did that Let my uh, people go yes. right, right um i have a dream um uh-huh we, then we talked about you know um Setting priorities and expectations. So, you know, Mitch, will you would you go door to door and do this? And Dan, will you write this white paper? Um, mm-hmm. So, and you know, our, our first priority is is to get the vote, and our second priority is to um, end coal burning, you know, uh, power plants by 2025. Yeah. That, you know, that, that setting goals that people. It's sort of the the more boots on the ground aspect of vision is, is is clouds in the sky and goals and expectations are what are we doing this month? Yes. And when, what's, where are we going to get to by September? Mm-hmm. Uh, then we did talk about delegating uh, work and decisions. So you so and with delegating, you're developing a cadre of leaders below you. Like many of the leaders in the civil rights movement uh, became, you know, Congress people and mayors and governors, many of the yeah. followers of Martin Luther King, because he developed leaders beneath him. Yeah. Um, as we said before, leaders, leadership is a very social activity, so communicating regularly, um, giving feedback, you know, uh, having meetings, one-on-one mm-hmm. meetings, you know, that, that, and two-way communication, both influencing, which is sort of the obvious one, but the less obvious one is being influenced, listening to other people's ideas. Um, you know, if, if the, only, the, the only things that get decided come from the leader's mouth. We 
call that you know uh, a plutocracy or you know uh, an autocracy that that leaders tend to be democratic and allow themselves and and, and the, the difficult Nietzsche wrote about this the difficult decision is is when to decide to influence and when to decide to be influenced. Mm. And it's not just I'll do it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's sort of you know nice topic thought. by topic yes. and, and listening deeply to other people's rationale. So it's again deeply engaged with with your followers, with your people. Uh, and along with that, on, on a more pragmatic basis, recognizing and rewarding people. That you know when people do accomplish things, you know, give them public recognition and give them and you know give them. Financial and non-financial rewards that 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 will maintain their leadership. And the their power of acknowledgments. Yes, I mean, nothing. I mean, it's amazing, and I think I'm not sure if it's just Western society, but but um, we give much more criticism than we than we do pats on the back. Yes, almost every organization I go to, and at first I thought it was just. American, or you know, but now the neuroscientists are learning that the human mind has a bias toward the negative. Yes, that we're much quicker to see problems than we are to, Wait, to it's see. It's a survival it. mechanism. From that point, yes, of view, exactly. It's a survival the, the, mechanism. Uh, yeah. The ancestors that saw that saw a lion through the through the dense brush survived. Right. The ancestor exactly. that, that walked along tra la 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 and didn't see problems died, and his genes died along with them. So we're exactly. we're, you know, we're we're ancestors of problem finders. There's and, a wisdom but, but, in having a smidgen of paranoia, Dan. There's a wisdom in it, an intelligence. As, as, a, matter, <laughs> as a matter of fact, yeah. Andy Grove, the, the the you know the primal leader of, of Intel, his book is called "Only the Paranoid Survive." Uh huh. There mean, we and, go. Yeah, Andy was a Hungarian well, immigrant who, who who lived through some very tough times in you know yeah. in Hungary. Uh, and escaped, but um, so anyway. But then, but that's antithetical to motivating other human beings. If you're that's just right. noticing problems, then you're sort of beating them up most more than not, and they get discouraged. And learning, learning actually, as far as I know, and the studies I've seen, uh, learning does not occur best in that environment at all. But the contrary, as right. you're as you're implying here. And so it's one thing to have the wisdom of paranoia, if you will, at base in some modicum amount, but truly the larger uh, volume of interactions is to be on the acknowledging, loving, understanding, and support side of the ledger. Right. And so therefore, that's a development um, opportunity for many leaders, is yes. to move move away from the problem finding, uh, not not ignore them, but pay more attention. And then, there's a great book in the 70s, the One Minute Manager, whose whose famous quote yes. was, "Catch somebody doing something right." Yes, and, right. Yeah. So yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, and that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. So I work with a lot yes. of coaches on helping them develop that new muscle of, yes. of recognizing and rewarding. You know, good performance. Could you give us a few examples uh, in our remaining minutes here of uh, some people you've worked with or uh, organizations where you've seen change occur? Yeah, yeah. A few um, examples. Okay, I'm 
thinking of a, a leader I worked with about two years ago uh, who had been, and he, he, he made a big transition from being a college professor to being a, a pharmaceutical research executive. Uh, and as a college professor, uh, everybody is is a deep underling. I mean, they're they're graduate students, who, and and you are the authority figure. They work for you for two years. They do your research for you. You can be pretty authoritarian. And then when he when he moved into the corporate world, uh, he was managing a bunch of other PhDs uh, who were in their 30s and 40s and maybe even 50s uh, who had opinions and who weren't used to being underlings. They're used to managing their own research. So one, and he had a couple um, development opportunities. One of them was was learning to speak more diplomatically uh, on top of making a transition from um, from academia to pharma, he was also he, also in his twenties. He he moved to America from Germany, and the German culture, as you might know, is pretty direct. Yeah. They call a spade a spade, and American culture is more polite. We yeah. you know we call a spade a, a black object that's pointy at one side and two rounds on the other. Yeah. So um, his and actually that took the most work. And also, you know, he, I mean, especially as a scientist, he worshipped the truth and thought that anything other than black and white statement of fact was beating around the bush. So to learn to speak more indirectly in order to preserve the feelings and the autonomy and to demonstrate respect for his people, that was a big part of his learning. Uh, and actually, and... and Learning dipl- diplomacy and and um, sensitivity and empathy is is something I work with a few clients on. Especially, yeah. I work with a lot of clients who are from science and technology. That's you know, th- their background is more direct and, as we said, organizational organizational leadership is more social. So sure. it's really part you know, of that. And trend. we we tend to associate that. And I I hear that there's. Uh, some real literature that that puts this frame completely in question, but we tend to think of that uh, culturally, at least, if not scientifically, as we thought of left brain activity, and that the right hemisphere, which is much more spatial and gestaltic and um, emotional, feeling oriented in nature, is not well developed. It's not harmonized with the right. other hemisphere. You know, right. so. You're in a position, in a situation like that, I'm looking at this from a very different point of view right now, maybe more psychotherapeutic, you could say, that, of uh, of a certain amount of armoring, the way Reich might have it, of the heart about the emotion, and um, not being able to actually penetrate, but being rather locked in to uh, that function of the cerebral cortex. Right. And said more appreciatively, we might, we might say, that part is underdeveloped. That's right. And and my goal is to help them develop, and in this case, um, the more emotional, you know, right side of their of their brain. The feeling um, both, nature. Both, yeah. yeah. And and there's there's a you know, and there's a whole other you know topic and very popular topic called emotional intelligence, 
yes. championed by Daniel Goleman, Daniel Goleman. Uh, which um, talks about you know this this set of, of emotional competencies and and, the, and some of the foundations of it of, of starting with recognizing your own emotions. So with yes. people I'm working with developing empathy and diplomacy and sensitivity, I'll, I won't go to other people first. I'll start with them recognizing their own emotions. Yes. When they're when they're angry, when they're happy, when they're scared, um, you know, and to, so they can and and label them and name them, because yes. it turns out that you can't recognize them in others uh, until you recognize them in yourself. Right. right. It's That's like part a of mirror neuron effect. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. So this is where the lines, the boundaries between psychotherapy and coaching can begin to get a little blurry, you know. I, I've I always thought it was extremely blurry. That, that yeah. There's, there's some coaches that that, that 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 claim they live in different worlds, but I think we, you know, yeah. it's very over, very overlapping professions. Yeah, you could say they're definitively blurry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Clearly blurry. Yes. <laughs> That's a very good example, though. That's a, that really highlights. And so you, through your coaching with him, you were able to bring him around to a more holistic, if you will, uh, behavior and attitude and, let's say, listening posture, poise. Yes, yes. And uh, way of speaking about his experience. Yes, and... Um after about 10 or 12 months, uh, everyone around him, both his, his direct reports and his peers, were just amazed at how different he was and how much, oh. <clears throat> how more, you know, more pleasant he was to engage in. And I just talked to him, you know, a few months ago, and, and he recently got promoted because he's now seen because he's a, you know he's very strong intellectually and he's a subject matter expert in in the science but now he's yeah. more of of a of a uh, sort of a leader. full service leader right yeah right well that's beautiful how gratifying for you mm-hmm. to you know know that you had such input although you know you do make the point in your book uh, that uh coaches need to really keep their ego in check because it's while they may be providing some very fine services, uh, it's really ultimately the client that's doing the work, the ones yes. that are in the weeds, really yes. making, you know, lifting the heavy weights, you know, and I think all proper credit belongs there. I, yes, and I, 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 I want to reinforce that again. That, that, uh, yeah. That, and um, they're doing the work, and they're needing the energy to do the work. And no matter how skillful the coach is, if the client is neither motivated nor disciplined or any other blocks, that they're not going to develop. That you know, there needs to be a, a nice mix of, of what we call readiness and you know, and skill on both parts. Yes, exactly. I we're coming close to a close, and yet I would like to bring up another topic that's very deeply meaningful to both of us, and that's the Pachamama Alliance. And here is an organization that is really seeking to promote education and leadership 
across the planet, really, in respect to how we relate to our planet, our Earth, our Mother Earth, our Pachamama, if you will. And um, how do you see, and of course we're both uh, involved in the New York chapter of Pachamama Alliance, and because of your work as an executive coach in leadership, Dan, how do you see that being applied to this context and how it can help on a systemic global level to bring these qualities forward? Yeah, great question. Um, for starters, that, that I see my role and our role as members of the Pachamama Alliance as leaders who are seeking to influence and change the behavior and mindset and emotions of the people of people in our society. So it's it's similar to a leader in a in a, in a smaller organization. Just our organization has seven and a half billion people. Now we're you know, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to we're not going to touch them all at once. So with Pachamama, our major vehicle are these workshops we call symposiums, and we'll have between you know eight and forty people in a room for the better part of a day, and the goal is to is to facilitate and stimulate some level of change in them. And there's some wonderful tools that are part of the program. There's there's videos and exercises. But one of the things that always attracted me to to the um, Pachamama Symposium is that there's a lot of two-way interaction, like with leaders, that uh, with, that people don't change just by listening to somebody or by watching some images. People change by there's talking. Loop. There's a feedback loop by talking about uh, what they're experiencing, by trying out new emotions, new mindsets, and eventually new behaviors. Uh, so, as a facilitator, I make sure there's, there's both information giving, but also, as you said, talking back. Also, you know, an interaction. Mm -hmm. And remember, we talked about the power of, of talk, that that begins yeah. to form new neural pathways in these 25 people. Uh, so that's one way to do it. The other way is to be a role model, uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, to, live, to live a life that's environmentally sustainable, that's spiritually fulfilling, and that's socially just. And yeah. that the people who come into and, – and, you know, not brag about it, but um, be free to talk about it. If someone, you know, if someone brings it up, um, it. and it, it, you know, that those are probably, I mean, two big things is seeing ourselves as leaders of the whole society, twenty people at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Fortunately, there's uh -huh. there's a couple hundred, a couple hundred chapters, and this is a at least a fifty-year endeavor anyway. Um, yes. But we're trying to change hearts and minds and, and, and behavior. Exactly, exactly. Do you find yourself dealing with belief systems that, of course, are predicated on, here we go again, early childhood experiences and perceptions of a person's ability to survive or not, uh, which is you know, basically sort of a, the pivot of so much of our later development? Uh, but thinking about, in particular, Pachamama, and we can look at so much of what's going on today in the degradation 
of our beautiful earth as a function of people thinking rather myopically about themselves and their own uh, profit and their own uh, acquisition at the expense of others. And, of course, that's all predicated on a certain belief system. Yes, so absolutely. Your thoughts. Yeah. That one, I, I always get involved in belief systems, um, yeah. both in executive coaching and in the Pachamama work. And, and the Pachamama yeah. Symposium itself works a lot on belief systems. Um, yeah. the, the most significant and, and, uh, of such is um, that we're separate from the other living things in our earth, yes. that we're different, we're apart. To some, you know, um, and some belief systems were superior. We're the top of the, you know, food the food chain. chain, or at least the top of the evolutionary chain. And mm-hmm. um, the symposium challenges that and gives a bunch of evidence that challenges that. That if there were more time, it, it, it could be more dialogic around it. I mean, the symposium essentially calls that a, you know, a false belief. Yeah. Uh, sort of like like a. Um, you know the old assumption you know, the old rational you know rationalist psychologist like Albert Ellis would say that's a, that's a faulty thought uh-huh. these days we uh-huh. we you know we don't call a thought faulty we'll help help the client come to believe that it, it's not constructive for yeah. the environment they sit, yeah. find themselves in but um belief systems are very very important especially when it comes to social behavior mm-hmm. you know if you believe you're separate uh you'll you know Dig up minerals from the ground and and use what you want and throw the rest in a slag heap until all of a sudden there's more slag heap than there are minerals and you can't you can't eat and you can't breathe. Yes. So you know, and actually you know, playing things own house. Yeah, playing things out into the future is a good way to change belief systems. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, yeah, the, the classic the classic in literature was was. Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol, where uh, he had um, Scrooge experience three different futures of, of mm-hmm. playing out his selfish, acquisitive behavior, and you know, Tiny Tim dying, and he saw that oh, when I play this out, it doesn't look so good, yeah. and that's what caused him. I mean, that was it's a great metaphor for for it change. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It lays it out the way it's so applicable to the subject. Yes, and, of and something and, and, and something change agents and coaches, you know, can, you know, rather than saying that's a faulty thought, say, look, let, let's play this out into the future and see what it looks exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. Let's look at the potential consequences. You know. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Dan White, I want to just thank you so much for all of your input today and acknowledge you for the good work that you've been doing for decades. And uh, I love that you're taking your intelligence and wisdom and heart and bringing it also to the Pachamama endeavor. It's beautiful for me to see. Yeah, thank you much. This has been a great pleasure talking with you. We should we should do it more often. <laughs> we should do it exactly. Let's make a point. Uh, on, on air, on air or off. Right. That's right. A little of both, right? Exactly. Right. 
Thanks so much. And right. so uh, if you were if you were David uh, Letterman, if you were David Letterman, you, you'd have me back on your show next year. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm looking at not that, but another. You know, some call me the white male Jewish Oprah. You know, and, uh, it's somewhere between that and maybe um, I don't know. There have to be a few other archetypal images for me to play mm-hmm. with. You know. Anyway. Listen, I really thank you for all of your input and sharing with our audience today about all that you're doing. The name of your company is Discover Consulting? Discovery. Discovery Consulting. Discovery. Okay, beautiful. Discovery Consulting. And people can find me at at discoveryconsulting.net. .net. Okay, wonderful. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Mitch. Okay. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye now. Dan White, the author of Coaching Leaders, Guiding People Who Guide Others. What a fabulous conversation. I so enjoyed that. It's it's like having uh, a kindred brother. You've heard me all, those of you who listen with regularity, speak about these things at length. Some might even say ad nauseum. I hope not. But uh, truly Uh, ad infinitum, and that's because these subjects are so important of looking at change and looking at leadership and looking at how we can move our society to, uh, shall I use the phrase, a better world. And uh, those of you who attend the Mitchell's Heaven on Earth Salon, which we meet a couple of times a month, down near Wall Street in the belly of the beast uh, know full well how much we emphasize this kind of creativity, this kind of, cons- this kind of leadership, these types of values that embrace our humanity, that encourage us to be living from the space of our heart and the neuroscience that, that corroborates the wisdom of such choices. And when we start living in this kind of way, we do recognize the oneness of all life, all sentient beings. And we want to connect and we want to preserve and we want to conserve and we want to respect and honor and celebrate. You could say that there is a a kind of a graduation in evolutionary graduation along this pathway of coming to celebration from honoring, from respecting, from conserving and preserving. And it's because we recognize I and thou are one. And that's, you could say, the high game of coaching and counseling and the whole domain of psychotherapy and on the other domains Equally as important are recognizing the distinctions and the boundaries between people and what each person individually brings to the table, brings to consciousness, and uh, brings as a gift as native peoples of Turtle Island would have said and do say that we all are given gifts and it's up to us to bring those gifts forward to the community in which we live and we share ourselves in that way. 
So I want to just thank you all for tuning in today. You have so many choices about where to put your time and attention, and I so appreciate that this is one of those places that you decide to visit and love when you uh, forward the links to our show is a better world to your friends and your family and your foes and your business partners and everybody so they can get a taste of a good life. They can get a taste of what it's like to live in the space of possibility and potential and not just living in that space, but actually begin to actualize it, to materialize it. That's our game here at A Better World. So appreciate your joining us. And remember that we, too, are a nonprofit 501c3. So any type of donation, which I really think of better and more realistically as a, an investment in our collective future through our organization, A Better World, that's always looking to build a conversation a platform, a media platform, so more ideas of this sort can be made, can be part of the public common and collective conversation. And as Dan well put it, our words, our talking has a real world effect. And we have to remember that. We speak things into existence, literally, material existence. Each word, our language, has a bioelectrical frequency, and we reach each other sometimes very deeply through speaking. After all, it's through speaking and words and language that we have song, which is music, and that's the most, the greatest influencer, perhaps, of all uh, into the human heart and spirit. So with that said, remember us at A Better World, and you can make donations either directly if they are sizable by contacting us first at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, or for smaller ones, uh, all of which we so deeply appreciate, believe me, and use wisely and prudently at our website, abetterworld.tv. With that all said, I want to just thank you again and wish you a wonderful week and look forward to seeing you next week. Take care now. 